Part Three of The Ambulance Made Two Trips by Murray Linster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. The situation was crystal clear. Big Jake Connors was displeased with Brink. In all the city whose rackets he was developing and consolidating, Brink was the only man who resisted Big Jake's civic enterprise and got away with it. And nobody who runs rackets can permit resistance. It is contagious. So Big Jake had ordered that Brink be brought into line or else. The or else alternative had run into snags before, and it was being given a big new try. There was the shrill high clamor of two women screaming at the tops of their voices because revolvers were waved at them. One elite employee at the pressing machine took his foot off the treadle and steam billowed wildly. Another man at a giant sheet-iron box which rumbled stared with his mouth open and blood draining from his cheeks. Brink alone looked, quite impossibly, amused and satisfied. "'Get outside!' snarled a voice as Fitzgerald's revolver came out ready for action. "'This joint is finished!' The companion of the snarling man rubbed suddenly at his eye. He rubbed again as if it twitched violently. But it was, after all, only a twitching eyelid. He reached negligently down and picked up a wooden box. By its markings it was a dozen-bottle box of spot-remover, the stuff used to get out spots the standard cleaning fluid in the dry-cleaning machine did not remove. The man heaved the box with the hand with which he had rubbed his twitching eye. The other man raised a hand, the one not holding a revolver, to rub at his own eye, which also seemed to twitch agitatedly. Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald had his revolver out. He drew in his breath for a stentorian command for them to drop their weapons, but he didn't have time to shout. The hurtling small box of spot-remover struck the large sheet-iron case from which loud rumblings came. It was a dryer, a device for spinning clothes which were wet with liquid from the dry-cleaning washer. A perforated drum revolved at high speed within it. The box of spot-remover hit the door. The door dented in, hit the high-speed drum inside, and flew frantically out again, free from its hinges and turning end for end as it flew. It slammed into the thrower's companion, spraining three fingers as it knocked his revolver to the floor. The weapon slid merrily away to the outer office between Detective Fitzgerald's feet. But this was not all. The dryer door, having disposed of one threatening revolver, slammed violently against the wall. The wall was merely a thin partition, neatly panelled on the office side, but with shelves containing cleaning and dyeing supplies on the other. The impact shook the partition. Dust fell from the shelves and supplies. The hood, who hadn't lost his gun, sneezed so violently that his hat came off. He bent nearly double, and in the act he jarred the partition again. Things fell from it. Many things. A two-gallon jar of extra-special detergent, used only for laces, 
conked him and smashed on the floor before him. It added to the stream of fluid, already flowing with singular directness for the open double back door of the workroom. The hood staggered, sneezed again, and convulsively pulled the trigger of his gun. The bullet hit something which was solid, heavy metal, ricocheted, ricocheted again, and the second hood howled and leaped wildly into the air. He came down in the flowing flood of spilled detergent. Flat on his stomach, and with marked forward momentum, he slid. The floor of the plant had recently been oiled to keep down dust. The coefficient of friction of a really good detergent on top of floor oil is remarkably low, somewhere around point oh oh nine. Hood number two slid magnificently on his belly on the superb lubrication afforded by detergent on top of floor oil. The first hood staggered. Something else fell from the shelf. It was a carton of electric light bulbs. Despite the protecting carton, they went off with cracklings like gunfire. Technically, they did not explode, but implode. But the hood with the revolver did not notice the difference. He leaped and also landed in the middle of the wide streak of detergent over oil which might have been arranged to receive him. He remained erect, but he slid slowly along that shining path. His relatively low speed was not his fault, because he went through all the motions of frenzied flight. His legs twinkled as they ran, but his feet slid backward. He moved with a sort of dignified celerity, running fast enough for ten times the speed upon a surface which had a frictional coefficient far below that of the smoothest possible ice. Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald gaped. His mouth dropped open, and his gun held laxly in a practically nerveless hand. The thing developed splendidly. The prone gunman slid out of the wide double door, pushing a bow-wave of detergent before him. He slid across the cement, just outside into the open garage, whose delivery truck was absent, and slammed with a sort of deliberate violence into a stack of four cardboard drums of that bone-black which is used to filter cleaning fluid so it can be used over again in the dry-cleaning machine. The garage was used for storage as well as shelter for the establishment's truck. The four drums were not accurately piled. They were three and a half feet high and two feet in diameter. They toppled sedately, falling with a fine precision upon the now hatless, running, sliding hood. One of them burst upon him. A second burst upon the prone man, who had butted through the cardboard of the bottom one on his arrival. There was a dense black cloud which filled all the interior of the garage. It was bone black which cannot be told from lamp-black or soot by the uninitiated. From the cloud came a despairing revolver-shot. It was pure reflex by a man who had been whammed over the head by a hundred-and-fifty-pound drum of yielding, in fact bursting, material. There was a metallic clang, then silence. In a very little while the dust-cloud cleared. One figure struggled insanely. Upon him descended 
from an oil drum of cylinder oil stored above the rafters, a tranquil, glistening rod of opalescent cylinder oil. His last bullet had punctured the drum. Oil turned the bone black upon him into a thick, sticky goo, which instantly gathered more bone black to become thicker, stickier, and gooier. He fought it while his unconscious companion lay with his head in a crumpled cardboard container of more black stuff. The despairing, struggling hood managed to get off one more shot, as if defying even fate and chance. The bullet likewise found a target. It burst a container of powdered dye stuff, also stored overhead. The container practically exploded and its contents descended in a widespread shower which coated all the interior of the garage with a lovely layer of bright heliotrope. Maybe the struggling hood saw it. If so, it broke him utterly. What had happened was starkly impossible. The only sane explanation was that he had died and was in hell. He accepted that explanation and broke into sobs. Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald had witnessed every instance of the happening, but he did not believe it. Nevertheless, he said in a strange voice, I'll phone for the paddy wagon. It'll do for an ambulance in case of need. He put away his unused service revolver, thinking strange dizzy thoughts of twitching eyelids and plastic scraps and starkly incredible happenings. He managed to call for the police patrol. When he hung up, he gazed blankly at the wall. He gazed, in fact, at a spot where a peculiar small machine with no visible function reposed, somewhat dusty, on a shelf. Brink stepped over briskly and closed the door between the scene of catastrophe and the immaculate shop. Somehow none of the mess had spilled back through the doorway. Then he came in, frowning a little. The fight's out of them, he said cheerfully. One's got a bad cut on his head, the other's completely unnerved. Tisk, tisk. I hate to have such things happen. Sergeant Fitzgerald shook himself, as if trying to come back to a normal and reasonable world. Look, he said in a hoarse voice, I saw it, and I still don't believe it. Things like this don't happen. I thought you might be lucky. It ain't that. I thought I might be crazy. It ain't that. What has been going on? Brink sat down. His air was one of wry contemplation. I told you I had a special kind of luck you couldn't believe. Did your eyelids twitch any time today? Fitzgerald swallowed. Uh, they did, and I stopped short and something that should have knocked my cranium down my windpipe missed me by inches. And again— but no matter, yes. Maybe you can believe it, then, said Brink. Did you ever hear of a man named Hieronymus? No, said Fitzgerald in a numbed voice. Who's he? He got a patent once, said Brink matter-of-factly. On a machine, he believed, detected something he called eloptic radiation. He thought it was a kind of radiation nobody had noticed before. He was wrong. It worked by something called Psy. Sergeant Fitzgerald shook his head. It still needed clearing. Psy isn't fully understood, explained Brink. 
but it will do a lot of things. For instance, it can change probability as magnetism can change temperature. You can establish a psi field in a suitable material, just as you establish a magnetic field in steel or alnico. Now if you spin a copper disk in a magnetic field, you get eddy currents. Keep it up, and the disk gets hot. If you're obstinate about it, you can melt the copper. It isn't the magnet as such that does the melting. It's the energy of the spinning disk that is changed into heat. The magnetic field simply sets up the conditions for the change of motion into heat. In the same way, am I boring you? Confusing me, said Fitzgerald, maybe, but keep on. Maybe I'll catch a glimmer presently. In the same way, said Brink, you can try to perform violent actions in a strong psi field, a field made especially to act on violence. When you first try it, you get something like eddy currents, warnings. It can be arranged that such psi eddy currents make your eyelids twitch. Keep it up, and probability changes to shift the most likely consequences of the violence. This is like a spinning copper disk getting hot. Then, if you're obstinate about it, you get the equivalent of the copper disk melting. Probability gets so drastically changed that the violent thing you're trying to do becomes something that can't happen. You can't spin a copper disk in a magnetic field when it melts. You can't commit a murder in a certain kind of psi field when probability goes hog-wild. Any other thing can happen to anybody else, to you, for example, but no violence can happen to the thing or person you're trying to do something violent to. The psi field has melted down ordinary probabilities. The violence you intend has become the most improbable of all conceivable things, you see? I'm beginning, said Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald dizzily, I'm beginning to get a toehold on what you mean. I hate to have to testify about it in court, but I'm receptive. So my special kind of luck, said Brink, comes from anti-violence psi fields set up in psi units of suitable material. They don't use up energy any more than a magnet does, but they transfer it like a magnet does. My brother-in-law thought he had to lose his business because Big Jake threatened violent things. I offered to take it over and protect it, with psi units. So far I have. When four hoods intended to shoot up the place and move to do it, they were warned. Psi eddy currents made their eyelids twitch. They went ahead. Probability changed. Quite unlikely things became more likely than not. They were obstinate about it, and what they intended became perhaps the only thing in the world that simply couldn't happen. So they crashed into a telephone pole. That wasn't violence, that was accident. The detective blinked, and then nodded, somehow painfully. I see, he said uncertainly. Somebody set a bomb in my delivery truck, added Brink. I'm sure his eyelids twitched, but he didn't stop. So probability changed. 
the explosion of that bomb in my truck became the most unlikely of all possible things. In fact, it became impossible. So some electric connection went bad and it didn't go off. Again, when Jacaro intended to plant a time firebomb to set the plant on fire, why, his eyelids must have twitched, but he didn't give up the intention. So the psi unit naturally made the burning of the plant impossible. For it to be impossible, the firebomb had to go off where it could do next to no harm. Jacaro lost his pants. He stopped. Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald swallowed carefully. I don't question it, he said dizzily, even if I don't believe it. Will you now tell me that what just happened was a sigh-something keeping violent things from happening? That's it, agreed Brink. The psi unit made the dryer door fly off and knock a pistol out of a man's hand. If they dropped the idea of violence, that would have ended the matter. They didn't. I accept it, said Fitzgerald. He gulped. Because I saw it. A court wouldn't believe it, though, Mr. Brink. Well? I've been trying for months, said Fitzgerald in sudden desperation to find a way to stop what Big Jake's doing. But he's tricky. He's organized. He's got smart lawyers. Mr. Brink, if the cops could use what you've got— Then he stopped. It'd never be authorized, he said bitterly. They'd never let a cop try it. No, agreed Brink. Until it's believed, it can only be used privately for private purposes. Like I've used it. Or— Hmm— do you fish, or bowl, or play golf, Sergeant? I could give you a psi unit that'd help you quite a bit in such a private purpose." Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald shook his head. Dryfly fishing's my specialty, he said bitterly, but no thank you. When I'm pitting myself against a trout, it's my private purpose to be a better fisherman than he's a fish. Using what you've got would be like dynamiting a stream. No sport in that. No, but this big Jake, he doesn't act sporting with the public. I'd give a lot to stop him. You'd get no credit for it, said Brink. No credit at all. It'd get the job done, said Fitzgerald indignantly. A man likes credit, but he likes a lot better to get a good job done. Brink grinned suddenly. Good man, he said approvingly. I'll buy your idea, Sergeant. If you play fair with a trout, you play fair with a crook. And an Irishman, anyhow, has a sort of inheritance. I'll give you what help I can, and you'll do things your grandfather would swear was the work of the little people. And for a first lesson, what? Big Jake discourages me, said Brink. So I'll call him up and say I'm coming to see him. I'll say if he wants this business, I'll sell it to him at a fair price. But I'll say otherwise I'll tell the newspapers about his threats, and the four of his hoods in the hospital, and the two others on the way there. Want to come along?" Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald reached his hand to where his service revolver reposed in its holster. Then he drew it away. He's a very violent man, he said hopefully. I wouldn't wonder he tried to get pretty rough, him and the characters he has on his payroll. 
if they have to be stopped from being violent by—what is it, psi units? Sure, I'll come along. <laughs> it ought to be most edifying to watch. There was a clanging outside. Brink and Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald delayed while the two unnerved, hapless, and formerly immaculate gunmen were loaded into the paddy wagon and carried away to the hospital that already held four of their ilk. Then Brink called Big Jake on the telephone. Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald listened with increasing appreciation as Brink made his proposition and explained, matter-of-factly, what had happened to Big Jake's minions who should have wrecked the Ely cleaners and dryers. When Brink hung up, Fitzgerald had a look of zestful anticipation on his face. He said to come right over, said Brink, but he was grinding his teeth. Ah, said Fitzgerald pleasurably, I'm thinking of the cab drivers and truck drivers that have been beat up. I'm thinking of property smashed and honest people scared. Do you know, I'm terribly afraid Big Jake's too much in the habit of violence to stop even if his eyelids twitch. It's deplorable. But on a strictly personal basis, I think I'll enjoy seeing Big Jake and his hoods discouraged by, what is it, psi units? Yes. And he did. Big Jake's eyelids undoubtedly did twitch while he was preparing a reception for Brink and Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald, but he did not heed the warning. He did not even think of the legal aspect of violent things attempted against his visitors. So he tried violence, he and his associates. They started out with fists and clubs, regardless of discretion. They tried to beat up Brink and Fitzgerald. From that they went on to sawed-off shotguns. Their efforts were still unsuccessful. Then they went to extremes. Fitzgerald wore an expression of pious joy as Big Jake Connors and his aides, obstinately attempting violent actions, were prevented by psi units. When it was all over, the ambulance had to make two trips. End of Part 3 End of The Ambulance Made Two Trips by Murray Linster this recording by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, October of 2012.